You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Between June 25th of 2007 and August of 2014, many people would have their lives changed or ended at the hands of someone who was entrusted with improving their quality of life as they got older. Elizabeth Wetlofer would eventually be charged and convicted of eight counts of first-degree murder, four counts of attempted murder, and two counts of aggravated assault. All of these crimes were committed against the vulnerable who had been placed in her care as a nurse. Why did she commit the crimes that she committed? How? did she commit the crimes that she committed? What can we, as a society, learn from this case about how we treat and take care of our vulnerable seniors and vulnerable people? Hello, and welcome to episode 47 of Gone But Never Forgotten, The Crimes and Conviction of Elizabeth Wetlofer. GBNF. This week, we have part three in our series on one of Canada's most notorious serial killers, Elizabeth Wetlofer. If you have landed on this episode as your first, we should mention that in part one, we covered Elizabeth's life before she descended into madness and looked at some of the ways that her life may have led her to the dark places that she wound up. In part two, we took the time to share the details that we could about each and every one of the victims of Elizabeth's heartbreaking and long drawn out rampage. But before we jump right into the case, what's new and exciting in the world of Gone But Never Forgotten, Lance? Well, I'm glad you asked. First off, I wanted to mention that as I started to write this show, I realized that there was too much information for this to be just one episode. We've decided to give each crime as much detail as we can out of respect for the victims and out of respect to the case. I think that there's a lot to be learned from this case, so this week we will cover the first seven charges that Elizabeth faced in chronological order, and next week we will cover the last seven charges and the fallout from the case. Well, we certainly would rather be accused of bringing too much information to the table rather than not enough, so that makes sense. Um, But what else is new? I don't think I've mentioned on the show yet that I've been painstakingly updating our videos on YouTube. If you've ever gone to our YouTube channel before, you know that our videos for episodes were quite literally just the audio file played against the backdrop of the show poster. Well, we realized that that just wasn't going to do. People watch YouTube for a variety of reasons, and we wanted to make the videos that we have more conducive to that. 
So you'll notice that up until I think episode 27 or so right now, so far, is now a new video that has all of the words transcribed at the bottom of the video. And we also have added new pictures and information as part of the backdrop for each case. I'm very excited to say that we've seen a massive jump in numbers since we started to work on this. That's awesome news. So head on over to YouTube, search us up, and subscribe to the channel. We would love to see you there. Absolutely. And while you're at it, don't forget to follow along with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and of course, Patreon. We love to interact with you guys and every social media feed is a little bit different. Speaking of following along, let's jump right in here and follow along Elizabeth Wetlofer and tell you about her awful, awful path of destruction. For this episode and the next, we will almost exclusively be using the agreed statement of facts between Her Majesty the Queen and Elizabeth Tracy May Wetlofer. Elizabeth Wetlofer was officially charged with eight counts of murder on October 25th of 2016. She would later also be charged with four counts of attempted murder and two counts of aggravated assault on January 13th of 2017. All of this came after Elizabeth confessed of her own free will to the crimes that she had committed while she was checked in as a patient at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Elizabeth had committed all of her crimes in southwestern Ontario between the years of 2007 and 2014 while she was working as a nurse, mostly within long-term care homes. Her position as a nurse granted her access to patient files, patient medications, and everything that she would need to seemingly conduct her own trials and later murder people by using insulin, a drug that is administered to diabetic patients to help control their blood sugar levels so that they can have a respectable quality of life and be as healthy as possible. On June 1st of 2017, Elizabeth Wetlofer would confess to all charges and waive her right to a preliminary hearing. On June 26th, she was sentenced to eight concurrent life sentences in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. As we jump into this, I want to point out that as a part of her confession, Elizabeth did state that she knew the difference between right and wrong as she committed her crimes. She did admit that she would feel and would be visited by surges that she could not control. She said that God, or the devil, or whatever that was, wanted and needed her to kill. Elizabeth did say that she felt horrible after each murder. She even tried, as mentioned in episode 1, to tell people about the murders and even about the surges, but nobody took her seriously. Initially, Elizabeth was held at the Grand Valley Institute for Women in Kitchener, Ontario, and then in March of 2018, she was transferred from Grand Valley to a secure psychiatric facility in Montreal. That has come under fire a bit because it is a facility that operates under an observation model, which means that they don't use weapons and they have no traditional prison things like bars on cells, for example. You might remember that in episode 42, we talked about a similar situation where Terry Lynn McClintock 
was moved from a prison to a healing lodge and the public outcry was so fierce that politicians were forced to reverse the move. For Elizabeth, thus far, this has seemingly not been the case. Can I just say, I'm conflicted on all of this. I know we have a lot of story to get to here, but I feel like I should share my conflict at this point. I feel, wow, is it possible for a serial killer to seem like less of a serial killer? I guess that I'm going to come right out and ask this question. Do you almost feel for this lady on some level like I do? I mean, I know that the reality is that we will never know if she truly feels or felt remorse, but... I feel like Elizabeth clearly had a lot of mental health issues, diagnosed and probably undiagnosed, and she actually looks like she tried to get some help at different times. So, yeah, I guess, do you feel bad for her on some level, or is it just me that has conflict by what we know? I think the answer to that, which is probably pretty popular across the board, is yes and no. So, yes, of course, you feel bad for her because, like, she's still a human being and she obviously had struggles because nobody does these things who doesn't have struggles of some kind. But at the same time, you don't feel bad for her because there's lots of people who struggle and don't do things like that. So I think it's, you know, I wouldn't say it's 50-50, but I'll say maybe it's like 70-30 for me. You know what I mean? Okay, so at least I can say I'm not alone on this. Yeah, I think for us especially is, like, we can look at someone as a person and another human being you know and also i think you know as a society when we find ways to reinstitute people or whatever it's i don't know it seems less cruel but at the same time sometimes maybe that's necessary all right well i feel better at least for getting that off my chest i needed to know if you felt the same way as i do or not I feel like we as a society are so worried about asking other people how they feel or if they feel the same way and it leads us to think at times that we're messed up or something because we assume that we're abnormal in ways that maybe we aren't. Consequently, I do think that that's exactly how Elizabeth felt based on what she said. She tried to get help. She tried to tell people what she was going through. She had confessed before. But nobody took her very seriously. Let's dive into the life and crimes of Elizabeth Wetlaufer, as confessed to in the Statement of Facts. Elizabeth's first two victims were Clotilde Adriano and Albina de Medeiros. Her interactions with both women would lead to the two charges of aggravated assault against Elizabeth. Clotilde and Albina lived at Crescent Care, where most of these crimes took place and where Elizabeth worked from 2007 to 2014. In March of 2007, Clotilde would move to Crescent Care. Elizabeth would start working at Crescent Care in June of 2007. It didn't take long for Elizabeth to start on her path of destruction. In July, less than a month after Elizabeth started working at Crescent Care, Clotilde started to experience hypoglycemic events that tended to occur in the evening. Elizabeth would tell police that she had very little interaction with Clotilde and she had no reason to have ill will towards her. But she was overwhelmed by her life and her career. Elizabeth would tell police that she remembered attending Clotilde's room on a night shift and remembers deliberately giving an extra dose of insulin to Clotilde over and above what she needed. Elizabeth would tell police in her confession, quote, 
I didn't really want her to die. I just don't know. I was just angry and um, had this sense inside me that she might be a person that God wanted back with him. I honestly felt that God wanted to use me. Unquote. Elizabeth said that she told police that she chose Clotilde because she was diabetic and insulin dependent. So the insulin was readily available and easy to access. Elizabeth confessed that she overdosed Clotilde multiple times. She said that each time that she did, other members of the nursing staff treated her for her hypoglycemia and kept her alive. Albina de Medeiros was Clotilde's sister-in-law, and she also lived at Carescent Care, having lived there since 2006. Elizabeth would admit, like Clotilde, to having dosed Albina multiple times with extra doses of insulin. Elizabeth would say that Albina had not done anything to provoke these overdoses, but again, she was chosen because she was diabetic and there was easy access to insulin for her at all times. Elizabeth estimated that she overdosed Albina in October of 2007. Medical records at Caressant Care would in fact show that Elizabeth had attended to Albina and that Albina had numerous events that resulted in the symptoms that are consistent with hypoglycemia. Elizabeth said that with Albina, much like with Clotilde, the reason that she had survived was because the nursing staff attended to her quickly and efficiently and regulated her blood sugar levels. This is so haunting because it's almost as though Elizabeth was testing the insulin to see how much would do what. I'll take it even a step further. She remembered that these lives were saved because of other members of the nursing team. That means that she was very likely watching for what signs alerted staff and how the staff reacted to hypoglycemia. It was as if she was building her routine, her MO, so to speak, and looking for what worked. What dose, when was the best time, how to react, and how others reacted. It's really sick to look at. She certainly seemed to know what she was doing, as she admitted. On August 11th of 2007, Elizabeth would escalate from assault to murder. Or perhaps more aptly, she was successful in what she had tried to do with Albina and Clotilde. On August 4th, James Silcox, a World War II veteran who lived at Crescent Care, had surgery on his right hip at Woodstock General Hospital. He returned home to Crescent Care on August 10th. James suffered from various mental impairments and was known to the nursing staff to often become confused, and he was also known to act inappropriately with staff, physically and verbally. On August 11th, notes show that James was noticeably confused, and he was unable to recognize himself or family in photographs. At 4 p.m., a nurse noted his status and also noted that his incision from his surgery was appearing to heal well. Around that time, Elizabeth would arrive at Crescent Care for a double shift, and one of the patients in her care was James. Elizabeth said that the pressures in her life were building up, with the separation from her husband, her job, and her life in general causing her dismay. She said that she was angry at James on August 11th due to his conduct, and she had an urge to kill him and wanted him to die. Elizabeth said that she felt like it was his time to die because of the way that he was treating the nurses, especially herself. Around 9.30 p.m., Elizabeth went to the medical storage room and found an insulin needle and insulin, prepared 50 units of insulin, which is a lot, I might add. 
At approximately 10.30 p.m., she would go to James's room and she injected him with the insulin, hoping that it would end his life. She would tell police that she gave even more insulin to James than her previous victims because they had not died. See, there's that dark practice from before coming into play again. Absolutely, and the instant remorse also became a thing according to Elizabeth. She said that after he was dosed with the insulin, James yelled out, I'm sorry, and I love you, and that made her feel absolutely awful and ashamed for what she had done. And so it should. But did she help him? No, of course she didn't. No, she did not help him or get help for him. She went on to say that she felt worse when his family came and when he passed away. The family had told her that she was a good nurse to their father and praised her after he had passed away. This is what I talked about in the past episodes. Imagine believing that this woman had taken care of your father and helped to keep him comfortable and then years later finding out that she literally was the person that killed him. That would be such an awful feeling. It really would. I don't think that anyone can understand what that would feel like. At approximately 3 a.m. on August 12, 2007, a PSW found James without vital signs. Elizabeth was the supervisor on duty at the time, and she went to the room, confirmed that James had passed away, and then contacted the family and the attending physician herself. You have to wonder what was going through her mind here. This woman knew that James was dead and knew how he had died, and yet she goes about her business. James Silcox was pronounced dead, and the listed cause of death was complications from hip surgery. Wow, this is what we talked about before a bit. Unfortunately, in situations like this, things do tend to fall to the easiest answer. You have a senior who was not in good health and who had just had surgery, which is obviously difficult the older you get. So, when he passes away, they assume that it must be some combination of things that may have been caused in surgery. Then, like you said in episode 2, the insulin wears off and the murder weapon is gone. It's just awful. But, like we said, I'm, I don't know what it's like in the rest of the world, but the way that we take care of our elderly here in Canada is, and has been for a long time, in trouble. Maurice Granat would be the second murder victim. Maurice had been at Caressant Care since December of 2006. He had battled cancer and over time had become increasingly frail and he spent many days in bed. He was not, however, diagnosed with mental illness nor with diabetes. On December 22nd, Elizabeth was working the graveyard shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. in Maurice's area. On that night, Elizabeth said that on one of her visits, Maurice had grabbed her breast. She demanded that he stop, which he did, but then he laughed at her. Elizabeth said that on that next shift, the next day, she felt the same urge rise up in her. She was angry at Maurice and she felt that she needed to ease that pressure. She wanted to kill Maurice. She went back to the medical storage room and she again retrieved insulin and returned to Maurice's room. Elizabeth would then go to Maurice's room and tell him that she needed to give him a vitamin shot. She then remembers giving Maurice the shot of insulin in his leg because he had very little body fat at the time. She gave Maurice a non-diabetic 40 to 60 units of fast-acting insulin. 
At 3.55 a.m., it was noted by a PSW that Maurice was very confused. At 5 a.m., Maurice was found to be sweating profusely and struggling to breathe. His family was called at that time. At 7.08 a.m., Elizabeth noted that his family was at his bedside. Maurice was unconscious but arose to sounds. She also noted that he appeared comfortable. At 11.45 a.m., Maurice Grenat would pass away with Elizabeth having made no attempt to save his life. Of course, we know that Elizabeth was far from finished. One thing that I do want to note is that Elizabeth really seemed to be in the driver's seat here, which is really sad. You can tell that when police went back, knowing that she had killed these people with insulin, it was almost obvious that everything that she confessed to was true. You could see it in the patient notes, in her own notes that she made. She was blatantly writing notes that showed hypoglycemic symptoms, not trying to save anyone, and didn't even try to necessarily cover her ass, even though she had the ability to. To me, that is telling of something. I'm just not entirely sure what exactly. I think that it kind of shows what you said earlier. She was certainly sick. What with the voices and the urges and even this. She had seen nurses react and save others that she had dosed, but she made no effort to save Maurice, even though she was well trained in what to do and she knew what had happened to him. The next victim chronologically would be Wayne Hedges. This would be the first of four victims of attempted murder by Elizabeth. When describing Wayne to police, Elizabeth would say that he was, quote, developmentally challenged, diabetic, and a handful, unquote. Elizabeth said in October of 2008, she had dosed Wayne with a large overdose of insulin because she believed that it was his turn to go. She believed that because Wayne had told her at times that he wanted to die. So, in October of 2008, she administered an overdose of insulin with the intention of ending his life. Medical records proved that while in her care, Wayne had a hypoglycemic event. However, the records also show that Elizabeth had administered medication to restore his glucose levels. Elizabeth says that she has no memory of saving his life and no idea why she would have done so. Okay, so this one bothers me a great deal as someone who has watched you have a hypoglycemic event. You go from low to high and both are awful and it takes a heck of a toll on your body and your mind. It's as if she was treating Wayne like a toy for her use or something. Yep, unfortunately in this case I can imagine that what this would have been like. I have lived it and it's incredibly awful. I find it interesting that Elizabeth says that she doesn't remember why she saved him or even remember saving him. Did she have a mental break that caused her to attack and then have her nursing instincts kick in? I certainly found that part to be weird and even almost out of character. Yeah, I thought the same thing as I was reading through the research. I don't know if Elizabeth really understood what she was going through on the mental side of things. This was seen in the next case as well. The second charge of attempted murder came in the case of Michael Priddle. Michael was a patient who suffered from Huntington's disease. Huntington's is a disease that inherited and it causes parts of your brain to die. That's what led to Michael living at Crescent Care. He needed 24-hour care and Elizabeth would describe the disease as having robbed Michael of his body 
but left him with his mind, which, she said, was a horrible way to live. Elizabeth would thus say that one night in 2009, she decided to intentionally overdose Michael with insulin. She said that Michael had never done anything to her, but she again felt the surging within her and felt that God was telling her that it was Michael's time to go because he was not enjoying his life at all. Elizabeth believes that she gave Michael 90 units of insulin. For those of you wondering at home, that is a lot, a lot of insulin. Everyone's doses are different, but for me, for an example, a meal is usually about 20 to 25 units of insulin to keep me level. 90 units is more than one-third of an insulin pen. Medical records would indicate that in July of 2008, not 2009, Elizabeth had been attending to Michael and he had experienced an incident that appeared to be a hypoglycemic event. Elizabeth said that Michael had survived the overdose without any help from any staff or medication. So, in this case, she just let things play out and Michael survived. Yep, this one seemed a bit different than the first five cases, although there certainly are similarities. This one really seems like an angel of mercy situation. It certainly does. An angel of mercy or angel of death is a criminal offender, usually a serial killer, who is employed as a caregiver and intentionally causes harm to or kills people that they care for. Usually, they use their position of power to save the patient from what in their mind is a severe illness that has already ruined their quality of life. Elizabeth certainly seems to have fallen under that label in this case for sure. She certainly seemed to believe that whatever that surge was, it was God telling her whose time it was. There's a lot of debate around assisted suicide and things like that, especially here in Canada right now, but this is certainly not that. This is a woman who was taking lives without the victims knowing what was going on. My beliefs are simple. No matter how hard someone else's life is, nobody else gets to decide for them when their time has come. Not any human being, certainly. Obviously, we all know that murder is still murder. The third victim of murder at the hands of Elizabeth Wetlawfer was Gladys Millard. Gladys's murder had a little bit more of an explanation to it. Elizabeth said that Gladys was spunky and spirited when she first came to Elizabeth's care. However, over time and with worsening dementia, she said that Gladys became very stubborn and difficult to deal with and administer medication to. Medical records would show that Gladys had some aggression issues as she got older at crescent care. On October 13th of 2011, Elizabeth was again working the graveyard shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. She said that Gladys's stubbornness likely played a part in her being chosen for the next overdose. Elizabeth said that she felt the, quote, red surging that told her that Gladys was the one. At approximately 5 a.m., Elizabeth again went to the medical room and took fast-acting insulin from the fridge. When Elizabeth came back to the room, she said that Gladys fought against the injection and Elizabeth had to inject her in a place that she could not reach. By the end of her shift at 7 a.m., medical records showed that Gladys was sweaty and unresponsive. Elizabeth even helped to move Gladys into the palliative care room. Elizabeth stated that she was worried that staff would realize that Gladys was dying because of something that Elizabeth had done. Unfortunately, those fears were not realized. 
The end of shift notes from Elizabeth stated, quote, Gladys has been awake all night, was crying out and had a very tense look on her face. She fell asleep and is currently still sleeping. Staff instructed to leave her in her bed asleep, unquote. At 9.45 a.m., Gladys was found to be sweaty, cold, clammy, foaming at the mouth, very pale, and her body and extremities were twitching. Over the course of the day, various medications were given to assist Gladys, but she sadly passed away by 4.05 p.m. It's a little too much description for me there. Yeah, but it's very real. The last thing that we want people to think is that there are not telltale signs when someone is killed in this way. There certainly are. This is not the, quote, perfect murder weapon. There certainly were red flags aplenty here, but again, as we've alluded to, I think that people don't realize how busy, bogged down, and downright difficult nursing and PSW work is in these long-term care homes. Unfortunately, there are a lot of things that slip through the cracks. What these people went through was no joke, and certainly Elizabeth was a monster. As you alluded to at the start of the episode, though, one has to wonder how much of Elizabeth was a monster, and how much of this was Elizabeth being steered by a monster, that being her own mental illness. For sure. It's so tough. There's obviously no excuse for what this woman did. But alongside the issues that we have inside of our long-term care here in Canada, we also have issues when it comes to mental health. Sure, we have Bell Let's Talk Day here in Canada, and we like to pretend that we care more about mental health and well-being as a society. But the reality is that there just is not the kind of care, help, or assistance that should be available for people who struggle to this extent. Elizabeth needed help. And she even tried to get help, as we covered in the past. The only reason that she was caught in the end is because of her own conscience and her own need to tell the truth. People did also fail Elizabeth, but Elizabeth really failed the people that she was taught, trained, and trusted to take care of. That, at the end of the day, is the real story here. It really is. Make no qualms about it that I feel that way too. Today we looked at two cases of aggravated assault, two cases of attempted murder, and three cases of murder. Next week we sadly still have five more murders and two more attempted murders to talk about. So as daunting as this week was, we're only halfway there. I think that we'll leave the deep thought and discussion for the end of next week's episode, which I gather will be a long one. I think that's probably a good idea. And yes, I do believe that our next episode may be our longest yet as we cover the rest of the crimes, the fallout, and even a little bit more after the fact on Elizabeth Wetlawfer. It'll be long and informative, but I think it's time that we wrap this thing up and move on to something else after that episode. I think I'm nearing my limit on Elizabeth Wetlawfer. That means, then, that there is nothing left to say except thank you again for listening and supporting us at Gone But Never Forgotten. Have a wonderful week and hashtag be better.